0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4 through 14. The author of Hebrews, speaking of Jesus, says this, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he said, Let all God's angels worship him. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels wins. And his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, "Your throne, O God, is forever and ever." The scepter of unrighteousness is the scepter. Excuse me. Of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they'll be changed. But you're the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we have come into this place to exalt you. We've already done so well this morning. We have sung of your glory. We have sung of the greatness of your faithfulness to us. We have sung about how there is none that is like you. That you deserve our forever adoration. And it's true. It is what you deserve because of who you are. We pray, O Lord Jesus, that as we look to you in the text this morning, that you would blaze before us in all of your glory. That we would see you for who you are. And that we would be irresistibly drawn to you in every way. That you might be preeminent in our lives in every way, shape, and form. For it's what you deserve. And it's what we need. And it's for your sake that we pray these things. Amen. This first uh, section here of Hebrews chapter 1 is literally full of meat if we're talking about a meal. There's no junk food in the mix here. It is meat right out of the chute, full on, frontal assault, truth. And we could spend weeks and weeks in the first few verses, but I'm going to sort of blast us ahead this morning because so many of the themes that that we run across here in the first that we haven't hit yet reoccur on other occasions throughout the text And so uh, instead of dwelling on each and every one here in the in the the first little section of introduction here um, We're going to focus on what we focus on and the things that we sort of glaze over Just know that we'll be back to those things as they reappear a little later on in the text But it's important as a reminder to set out what the author of Hebrews is about here and what he intends to do with us in this letter. He intends to declare to us and to expose to us the absolute superiority of Jesus Christ over everything and everyone. It's what he intended to do with his original audience to whom he wrote the letter and it's what he intends for anyone who ever reads this letter to walk away with. He intends for those who read it, to walk away absolutely captivated by the glory and splendor and absolute superiority of Jesus over anything and anyone and everything and everyone. And to come to the absolute inevitable conclusion that he is, in fact, God in human flesh who has come to die for the sins of his people and that the only hope for any human being ever in the history of the world is to confess their sin, repent, and entrust their lives to him that they might find in him eternal life and salvation for their soul. That is what he's driving at from start to finish. And the way he's chosen to do that is particular, and the way that he's gone about it is somewhat seasoned by the original audience to whom he writes. And we talked about this in our introduction, that the writer to Hebrews is writing primarily to an audience of Jewish people who are made up largely of Jewish converts, but also of people who are what we would call curious Jews. People who are still attached to Judaism, but were... Uh, drawn in some way to the christian church and so he's speaking to people who have a jewish background and a jewish mindset and a jewish worldview and so it requires for us people who are not in that particular status uh, some work all along the way to try and uh, sort of teleport ourselves back mentally into the shoes of a first century Jewish person's mindset and worldview and understanding so that we understand exactly what the author is getting at and why he chooses the things that he chooses to talk about. And then we need to somehow transport back into 2018 and translate the, the application piece of that. What does that mean for us? And how does that apply to us, Gentile people In the United States of America in the year 2018. And so you can understand just in me saying those things, why when we read a text like Hebrews chapter 1, 4 through 14, you find yourself going, what in the world is that all about? And it's why it requires for us throughout this series an awful lot of work to try and do those things well. And for us to sort of pull back the veil and understand what is being said and what is being expected. But I want to assure you that the work is worth it. And so this morning we launch into the second part of this introduction. And if you recall, in the first piece, in verses 1 through 3, Uh, He asserts two things that we've looked at in depth One thing that he asserts right at the beginning is that we have a God who's a God who speaks He's not a God who is silent He is not a God who has wound things up on this world and just set it in motion like a top and has then gone off to do something else But he is a God who has made everything and he's a God who has spoken in the past And he's a God who continues to speak now He doesn't leave us into the dark as to who he is and to what he expects of us He has told us and he continues to speak to us both in His Son and through His Word. And then He goes on to to tell us that the way primarily through which He speaks to us now is through the testimony of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the giving of His Son, who is, in, in a sense, the final word to man from the Father. And He declares to us that this Jesus, through whom He speaks, who is His final word, is greater than any prophet that has ever lived. He says in times past, God spoke to the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. Jesus is superior to the prophets. What Jesus has to say is superior to what the prophets have to say. Not that what they said was unimportant or untrue or no longer valid, but that what Jesus has to say is the complete and utter fulfillment of what they said. What they saw from a distance, in part, sort of through a haze, Jesus makes perfectly clear. And if you were a first century Jew, you would have had great respect for the prophets and the words of the prophets. And so you needed to know, and you needed to be confronted with the reality that as important as the prophets were, Jesus is greater, and he's more important. Also, if you were a first century Jew, you had a great and utter respect for angels and the angelic realm. And so the author then moves from talking about Jesus being superior to the prophets to speaking about Jesus being superior to angels. And what he's driving at at the end of the day here in this first section is he's driving home systematically the truth that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. That he is no less than God in person. That when you look to Jesus, you see God. When you hear Jesus' words, you're hearing God's words. That in every sense, he is a deity in flesh. And that is, the, that is the sort of hinge point that has always been The issue when it comes to jesus It doesn't matter if you're in the first century or if you're in our day the the hinge point is is jesus god? And the world has always been able to tolerate a jesus who's not god It's always been able to tolerate a jesus who's a good teacher It's always been able to tolerate a jesus who's a great prophet It's always been able to tolerate a jesus who's a, a good moral example it's always been able to tolerate a Jesus who's, who has some wise things, helpful things to tell us uh, as far as how to live a moral life. But what the world has never been able to tolerate around us is that Jesus is all of those things, but beyond all of that, He is God, the one and only. And He deserves to be worshipped and obeyed. And that there is none like Him, and that there will never be one like Him that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that the only way to be made right with God is to be made right through him and to affirm that he is who he has claimed to be. And this is the hinge point between Christianity and every cult and every false religion. Every cult and every false religion in the world Somehow, some way denies that Jesus is God. They may revere Him, they may respect Him, they may talk about Him, they may use His name, but at the end of the day, they deny that Jesus is God. I'll give you some examples of just some of the movements that are modern. This has always been true. If you go back and study the history of the early church, you run across movements like the Ebionites and the Arians who followed a man by the name of Arius. And and that was the whole crux of the issue, a denial of the deity of Jesus. The Council of Nicaea had to deal with this in the early part of the the history of the church. They had to deal with this heresy called Arianism that denied the deity of Jesus. The Arians would say that Jesus is great, he's greater than any created being, but, and even that he pre-existed. But their argument was that he's not God. That he's created by God. But he's not God. And we still deal with that in our day. A few examples. Those who submit to the Baha'i faith. Would say something like this, and I'm going to give you a bunch of faiths that are movements that are moving around right now and some direct quotes from their writings. The Baha'i faith says this, quote, Jesus was not the only begotten Son of God come down from heaven, crucified and resurrected, nor the unique Savior. It's a denial of the deity of Jesus. The Christadelphian church led by a man named John Thomas says this Jesus Christ did not exist as a person from eternity as the one, as one of the triune Godhead He did not actually come into being until he was begotten of the Holy Spirit and born in Bethlehem If you know any Christadelphians, that's what they hold If you followed the Swami Rama from the Himalayan Institute He says this, the Christ is your soul, and you should learn to see him in all beings. Jesus isn't God. He's your soul. Or if you follow the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, they say this, Christ's claim to be the only son of God is often misunderstood. When Jesus Christ taught his doctrine in the Middle East, he appeared to be God's only son or pure devotee. But why should God have only one son? God can have billions and trillions of sons. Each and every one can be his only son. The Jehovah's Witnesses, followers of Charles Taze Russell, say this. The incarnation is scripturally erroneous. Indeed, if Christ has been an incarnate being, he could never have redeemed mankind. Jesus is not God in human flesh. He's something else. If you were a follower of Joseph Smith in the Mormon church, you would, you would affirm that Christ is the firstborn spirit uh, spirit son of the eternal family. And while yet in pre-existence he advanced and progressed and became like the father in power and intelligence, he became some sort of a god. Or if you followed Ron L. Ron Hubbard in Scientology, you would hear words like this, neither Lord Buddha nor Jesus Christ, uh, either one, were... Operation thetans, which is their terminology for some kind of God They were just a shade above clear And you have to understand what thetans are in clear And it doesn't really matter for us this morning because it's nonsense and foolishness But at the end of the day, it's just another way of denying the deity of Jesus If you follow Tibetan Buddhism, you'd hear things like this Any kind of a savior notion will not function 100% Worshipping a, quote, deity of any kind is the wrong way. And taking refuge in a father God is truly self defeating. Or if you went to the local Unitarian Universalist church, like the one in downtown Charleston, you'd hear somebody say something along the lines of this We don't regard him as a supernatural creature, the literal Son of God who was miraculously sent as part of an involved plan for the salvation of human souls. Or if you followed Zen Buddhism, you'd hear something like this. Who is Jesus? He has no name. And Jesus declares, split wood, I'm up there. Lift up the stone and you find me there. And we could go on and on and on and on and list every movement that blows around in our culture today And you'll find that just like the ancient Ebionites and Arians in some way shape or form They've come up with a new scheme a new false religion It may use all the same language, but at the end of the day, it is a denial that Jesus is God And everything hinges on the fact and the reality that in fact Jesus is God But we live in a world that does not, desperately does not want to hear that. And desperately does not want to affirm that. Because to affirm that Jesus is God is to affirm that everything that he said is true. And is to affirm that we are accountable to him because he made us. And we must submit to him. We must repent of our sin. And we must entrust our lives to him. And we must live in relationship right with him. Or we die and spend eternity in hell. And that is the message that the world absolutely around us cannot tolerate. And so if you take two of the biggest movements that, that address this issue in our day, you have Islam that denies that Jesus was God. He's a great prophet, but he is not God. Or the Jehovah's Witnesses who argue that Jesus was Michael, the archangel. Again, an angel, but not God. And here in the first couple of sections here of chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews blows out of the water both the claim of Islam and the claim of the Jehovah's Witnesses. No, he says, Jesus is not a great prophet. He is greater than all prophets. And he says to the Jehovah's Witness, no, Jesus is not the archangel Gabriel or the archangel Michael. He is greater than all the angels put together. And I go through all that simply to tell you that what the writer to the Hebrews is declaring in the first century is just as real and relevant and challenged in our day as it was in theirs. And so he moves here into this whole, this whole section where he deals with Jesus' superiority over angels. Jesus' superiority over the angels. And and the question arises, why in the world is he so concerned about angels? Why in the world talk about angels? It seems like there's a lot of different things you could talk about to, to, to express Jesus' ultimate superiority other than angels. Why go there? Why compare with them? Well, we don't know what the specific issue was that was facing this particular church, but we know that they were being persecuted. And we know that there was tremendous pressure and temptation for them to revert back to the ways of Judaism and to abandon this obsession with the deity of Jesus And so we We, we, we also know that in that time there was within Judaism a movement That would even worship angels and that was an acceptable form of Judaism So it may be that there was pressure on these believers to somewhat demote Jesus in their view Just quit just quit affirming him as God well, let's just say that he's an angel That way you don't deny him outright you can still have respect for him and honor him, but just don't declare him God. We know that was true in some sense because in Colossians chapter 2, Paul has to address that in the Colossian church where he says, verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So at least in the Colossian church, there was this temptation to worship the angels. Angels were revered and they were honored and in some cases even worship. And so if you're a first century Jew and you have great respect for the prophets and you have this high and elevated view of angels, even arriving to the, to the level of being willing to worship them, that has to be confronted and addressed. And you have to be shown that as much as you honor the angels, Christ is superior to them and far more deserving of your worship. So at the end of the day, the temptation on the the plate of those to whom this author writes, the temptation is simply this. They are tempted to demote Jesus in their own lives and in their own thoughts to something less than Almighty God. To put him on par with the angels at best, to demote him below the angels at worst. And that temptation is just as real in our day as it was in their day. Oh, nobody's, I suspect, tempting you to worship angels this week. But the temptation to demote Jesus to something below Almighty God is very real. Both in our thought life and in our practical lives. We'll talk more about that. It's important for us to give a little background here. And by the way, we're going to do two weeks on these verses, so we'll get to them in a moment. But there's some background that's really important. When you look to the Bible, you find that angels are pretty remarkable creatures. I don't know if you've looked into this very much or you've thought very much about how the Bible presents angels, but the Bible presents angels quite differently than the way the culture around us presents angels. C.S. Lewis observed this, and he wrote in his famous book, The Screwtape Letters, he he, he there complains about sort of the distorted way angels are perceived in the culture, even in his day, and it's just as bad, if not worse, than ours. In The Screwtape Letters, he says this. He says, Friar Angelico's angels carry in their face and gesture the peace and authority of heaven. Later come the chubby, infantile nudes of Raphael, Finally, the soft, slim, girlish, and consolatory angels of the 19th century art, shapes so feminine that they avoid being voluptuous only by their total insipidity. They're a per- pernicious symbol. In Scripture, the visitation of an angel is always alarming. It has to begin by saying, fear not. The Victorian angel looks as if it were, to, were going to say, well, they're there. I like the way he said that. In the Bible, when angels show up, the first thing they have to say is, Fear not. Why do they have to say that? Because clearly their presence in, in, in front of any human being is absolutely, completely horrifying and terrifying to the human eye and to the human mind. And so it's such so that when they appear and show themselves in their form... They must immediately say to whomever they appear Don't be afraid Because the natural inclination of a human heart To see an angel Is to be absolutely mortified and horrified And what Lewis is trying to express Is the way that our culture presents angels Is anything but horrifying It's little fat chubby angels Floating around on clouds and diapers Or voluptuous attractive women with wings That like he says, are more apt to say, now they're there, then fear not. If we think of angels that way, if we think of angels as chubby little fat babies with diapers and wings, or as beautiful women who are just there to make you happy and comfortable, then this makes no sense what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. Why would anyone worship that? Why would anyone exalt that? Well, no one would and they never have because it's a false view of angels altogether When we look to the scriptures we find a a picture of creatures that are powerful beyond our understanding That are intelligent far beyond our understanding That are immense and incredible beyond what we could grasp or know When isaiah saw the lord high and lifted up and he saw a vision of angels he was mortified He was horrified He was dumbstruck. It was traumatizing to Isaiah to see angels. And that's been true of anyone who's ever seen them in their own form. Angels are mentioned all throughout the Bible. They're mentioned over 100 times in the Old Testament, over 160 times in the New Testament. What we know about the angels is that there's a lot of them. When we look to the book of Revelation, and we look to actually the beginning of the New Testament, we see uh, on a couple of occasions that they're described in number as myriads among myriads. So if you don't know what a myriad is, just know that's a lot. And myriads of myriads is a, a lot more than a lot. There's a bunch of angels. A bunch of them. In most cases, angels are invisible. In most cases, they do their work unseen. In most cases, they do what they've been called and tasked by God to do and sent to do in ways that are not visible, not perceived, not heard, not smelled, not seen. We know that because of a couple uh, of examples in the Bible and some testimonies even in our day. We'll talk about that a little more next week when we get to the end of this text. But we know, at least in the Old Testament, you remember the story of Balaam and Balak? Do you remember that? Balaam's donkey, he's going to curse the Israelites, but the donkey won't go. He keeps turning, and he's beating his donkey because the donkey won't go, and the donkey finally does what? He speaks to him and says, look here, why don't you quit hitting me? You idiot. That's my loose paraphrase. And what was the problem? Well, the donkey could see what Balaam couldn't see. And then the Lord opened his eyes, and he saw An angel. And then he understood. If you were the donkey, you wouldn't go there either. Because it was horrifying and terrifying and unbelievable. Ordinarily, when angels appear, in the text of Scripture at least, they appear in human appearance and can be even mistaken for men. We see that in multiple instances in both the Old uh, Testament and in the New Testament. Other times they appear in sort of their natural form. We saw in Isaiah 6, chapter 2, these fabulous seraphim and cherubim, winged creatures beyond description. Isaiah tries with the vocabulary that he has at his disposal to describe what he sees, but it's something that is unimaginable and undescribable. But he tries... We see it when John gets a vision of heaven and he tries to describe it. We see it when Ezekiel captures a vision of angels and he looks and he sees sees wheels among wheels and he begins to describe something that just seems unimaginable to us. But to him, it was incredible, unfathomable, traumatizing. The Greek word for angels is angelos. It's a word that simply means messengers, and that's primarily what angels are. They're divine messengers. They are, they are created by God and tasked by God to deliver messages to his people in various ways, shapes, and form. They can wield tremendous power. We see in the Old Testament angels slaying an entire army. We see angels delivering people from prisons that are locked. We see angels doing all sorts of incredible things well beyond the power and strength of of any human being that has ever lived or will ever live. It seems that they're tasked at least primarily with a few common things. One of the things that primarily angels do is they worship and praise the God that they serve, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. They communicate God's messages to men. We see that throughout the text. We see that with Daniel. We see it uh, with the Apostle John. We see it with John the Baptist and Jesus At the end of this text, in verse 14, we're going to come back around to this issue and the writer of Hebrews is going to explain to us how really the primary task of angels right now is that God sends them to help you and me in our walk with the Lord get to the end, to the finish line, safely. They minister to believers. And we know that at the end of time, they're going to be God's agents of judgment. The full power of the angels will be unleashed. And judgment on the wicked. And that, my friends, is a horrifying sight. Angels are incredible. Angels are phenomenal. We know nothing like them. And we are nothing like them. But as remarkable as angels are, as significant as angels are, as powerful as angels are, as amazing as angels are, Jesus Christ is greater. He's superior to every angel. He is superior in every way, in every shape, in every form to angels. In fact, he is as different and superior to angels as the infinite is from the finite. The gap between Jesus and angels isn't even a close gap. It's a remarkable gap that's unfathomable. And that's what the author to Hebrews is wanting to describe in verse 4 all the way to the end of verse 14 and really into chapter 2 all the way down to verse 18 is he's wanting to say to them, you have great respect for angels and it's right for you to respect angels, but you need to understand that Jesus is far superior to all the angels put together. And all of verse 4 through 14 is him elaborating that point and giving, giving us some bullet points on why Jesus is superior To the angels. Why Jesus is superior to the angels. How it is that he's superior. And before we get into that piece and start with the first point this morning, I want to make two quick notes. Number one is this it's important for us to notice how the author goes about explaining and declaring Jesus' superiority to the angels. How does he do that? He takes his Jewish audience to the Old Testament. What this author does is brilliant. He, he provides exposition of the Old Testament to Jews to show them that the Old Testament declares that Jesus is God. It's really impressive, and it's remarkable. In this particular text, he quotes seven old testament passages and he shows his jewish audience how those seven passages interpreted rightly point to the reality that jesus is god in human flesh far superior to any angel that has ever lived or all angels put together i note that for you because it's important to realize that for this author the old testament scriptures are his authority he has no authority apart from the written word of the old testament and when he wants to make a point, he makes it from the text of Scripture. He doesn't make it from dreams or from visions or from his own thoughts or from his own wisdom. He says, let me explain to you how Jesus is superior to angels, and let me explain it to you from the words of God himself. And so we find as he goes through here, when he quotes an Old Testament Scripture, and the Scripture says something, he says, he says. Because to the writer of Hebrews, the words we find in the Old Testament, the Old Testament... Are the very words of God When it speaks He speaks Do you see that? And I I make that point Only because There are those in our day who, Who even within the Evangelical Christian world Will continue to run around And say things that are stupid And foolish Like we don't need to be too concerned About the Old Testament We don't need to be tied down To the Old Testament We have the New Testament we should focus on the New Testament. The Old Testament has been superseded in some way by the New Testament. And, and, and the Old Testament, we really shouldn't be, even Andy Stanley. This has been a huge issue. If you just, just Google Andy Stanley, son of Charles Stanley, pastor of massive Atlanta church, thousands upon thousands of people, has been foolishly saying this for now over a year on more than one occasion, arguing out of pure ignorance that we don't need to be tied down to the Old Testament. That we don't need to be locked into the Old Testament. In his view, the Old Testament's a little embarrassing when, we, when we're facing unbelievers. You know, we have to explain all this death and carnage and all of that stuff. We have to explain all these laws that don't make sense. We don't need to be tied down to all that stuff. We have the New Testament. Jesus has kind of made all that null and void. Well, the writer of the Hebrews has great offense with that. Because it seems clear to me that he thinks that everything in the Old Testament, even in his day, is still the very word of God and still very, very relevant. And still we make our case from that because it is the word of God. All right, I'm going to get off that soapbox for a minute. The scriptures are his authority. And the question that should be rattling around in the back of our minds, I believe, as we walk our way through this in the last bit of time we have today and next week, is this. In my mind, and in my life, and in my experience, is there something better than Jesus? Is there something greater than Jesus? Is there someone I look to more than Jesus? Is there someone I revere more than Jesus? Another way of saying it is is the thought, Have I in some way in my thoughts and my behavior demoted Jesus from almighty Godhood? You see, in our day, within the Christian world, in our little experience here, we we all affirm that Jesus is God. That's part of our doctrine statement. But to affirm it in doctrine is a different thing than to live it in the give and take of life. And I want to suggest to you there are thousands of ways that we deny the deity of Jesus and demote him in our lives while at the same time affirming the doctrine. Try to flesh that out as we work our way through but I want you to question that in your mind Are there ways that I underestimate him are there ways that I are there times when I turn to some other source That I think can help me more that I think is going to provide for me better Are there ways in which I belittle him demote him and embarrassed by him? Are there ways that I hide my faith in order to avoid embarrassment and confrontation with the reality that I believe that Jesus is God Do I demote jesus? Do I look to something else as greater? That's what we should be thinking about. So Jesus, he's greater than the angels, the writer to the Hebrews says. And the first way, or the first reason, or the first argument he makes for Jesus' superiority to angels is in verses 4 and 5. And he says this, the first way we know Jesus is superior than the angels is because his name is superior to theirs. He has a superior name. We see this, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so the immediate question that comes to our mind when we read that is, well, what in the world name is he talking about? What name does Jesus have that he has inherited that identifies him as greater than the angels? Jesus was called by a lot of different names, right? What are some of the names Jesus was called as we read the New Testament? Son of Man, Christ, Jesus, Messiah. All of those things are true. Lord, Jesus had a lot of names. What name is he talking about here? What name is it that he talks about as the designated name that identifies Jesus as greater than everything, including the angels? And in what sense has he inherited that name? To answer that question, he takes us to the Old Testament and expounds Psalm 2. Maybe in the introduction next week I'll have time to sort of show you the structure of this first section because that in itself is remarkable. But. Uh, we just haven't had time to do that yet. Go to Psalm 2. If you have your Bible, turn there. It's worth turning to. This is an Old Testament psalm, Psalm 2, that is, was, all, was universally known among the Jewish community at the time or universally understood to be a messianic psalm. You understand what I mean when I say a messianic psalm? I, I, I mean a psalm that Jews understood, pointed to the Messiah who was to come. Okay? Jews universally saw it that way. Psalm 2. Let me just read you a portion of this. Why do the nations rage? This is a rage, by the way. This is a a wartime psalm. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now let's pause right there. What you've got is a picture of humanity gathering together in rebellion against God. And God identifies himself here uh, as uh, the Lord and his anointed. So we see here that we have... Both one and yet two at the same time. So we're talking about the Lord and His anointed. And we've got the, the nations who've gathered in rebellion against them. And what are they saying against the Lord? They're saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What are they saying is, we don't want to be bound by Him anymore. We don't want to give homage to God anymore. We don't be tied down to God anymore. We don't want to honor Him. We don't want to worship Him. We want to be free of God. We want to be free of any concept of God. And we're going to just eliminate Him from the picture thing together doesn't take us much to see that mindset in our culture all around us right? we don't need God we can do away with him we'll just say he doesn't exist we'll just live as though he doesn't we'll set up our own rules we'll set up our own philosophies we'll set up our own belief systems we'll cast him away just forget him Well, the psalmist knows that that's always been a reality, and then he tells us, "Well, how does the Lord respond to such things?" He who sits in the heavens, he laughs. He laughs. What does God laugh at? He laughs at puny humans who think they can throw Him off. It's like the it's like the little child in the home who picks up his plastic sword and says, "Mom and Dad, I'm overthrowing you." What do you do in a scene like that? You just laugh. You know, it's so infantile and so foolish. One so pithy and pathetic could never do such a thing. And to think that he could is just, it's fodder for laughter. God looks at mankind when man lifts up his fist in rebellion against him and says, I don't want you, I don't need you, I don't believe in you, you don't exist, and I'm casting you off. And the Lord simply laughs at that. Give it. Knock yourself out. Give it a try. Give it your best shot what he does the lord holds them in derision so his first and immediate response is laughter at the foolishness of it all but he has a greater response the psalmist tells us he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying as for me i have set my king on zion my holy hill I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with an iron rod and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. God has two responses to those to people and the nations when they rage against him and they rebel against him it's immediate laughter at the foolishness of such an endeavor and then it is a, a a response of okay here's my response i'm going to set up my king on zion i'm going to place my king in his place on the earth and he is going to rule you and he's going to show you exactly who i am and that you have no chance in your rebellion and who is that king that he's going to set up on zion He's the same one to whom he says, you are my son. You're my son. It's his son. It's his son. And that's why at the end of the psalm in verse 12, he gives this warning that we should hear. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. What is this name the psalmist is exalting here? What is the name of the anointed one? What is the name of this king that is the Messiah who's going to be set up as king who will rule forever the nations? His name is the Son, Son of God. Every Jew would have understood this. This, this, this prophetic text had some immediate sort of Prophetic uh, uh, um, application But it has the greatest application In the coming Messiah They knew And every Jew looked for the time When God would install a king And he would call him son And that son of God would rule And destroy their enemies And set up God's kingdom on earth The writer of Hebrews is saying That son Is none other than the Lord Jesus What other angel has God ever given the name Son the answer is none. What other angel has God ever set up as his king in Zion? The answer is none. Now, what is this matter of being begotten? Because this is something that Jehovah's Witnesses uh, pick up on, and they, they reinterpret this word to mean created. The word begotten does not mean created. It does not indicate that Jesus, that there was a time when Jesus once was not, and at some point he was made as a created creature. No, that is not what the word begotten means in scripture And it never means that in scripture Anywhere that we find it Uh, When when we speak of or when we read of In the New Testament That Jesus being the only begotten son Or being begotten in some sense These are always and in every case A reference to his incarnation The only sense in which Jesus was begotten Is that he was begotten when he was born in Bethlehem Jesus has always been the second person of the Godhood He has always existed co-eternal Co-equal to God the second person of the Godhead. But He is the second person of the Godhead. One God, three persons. Jesus, the second person, is the one who was born in Bethlehem, who was born into human flesh and was begotten into the world. So when you see begotten, don't think created, think born into human flesh. He then takes us to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, his other evidence from the Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, we find this. 2 Samuel chapter 7. The context here is the Davidic covenant, the covenant. That God made with David. The context is a prophet Nathan speaking to David on behalf of God. And he says to him some incredible things. But he says things like this, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that is when you die, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be my son. If you read down And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever God promises to david david when you die i'm going to raise up from you a son And the son is going to build for me a house now We know that there was an immediate fulfillment because david's actual son by birth was young solomon and solomon in fact uh, did do that very thing he built the temple which david was not allowed to do And so in that sense solomon was an initial fulfillment of the first part of this But as you read that 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 remarkable thing that god says to david this covenant he makes with him You know that what god is promising here could never be fulfilled by any particular human being It was true that solomon built the house the temple, but solomon was not established as one whose kingdom is forever He is not a, a one who sits on the throne forever He is not one who is made sure forever and whose throne shall be established forever. And the Jews knew this. They understood that that what was here was a prophecy that God had another king that he was going to establish a throne for and set up at the line of David. And what is the name of that future Davidic king? I will be to him a father and he shall be a what? He'll be a son. His name is Son. Again, the same theme from Psalm chapter 2. This name is Son. No angel has ever been the Son of God. No angel has ever been the Davidic king and heir to the throne. No angel has ever been the one that God is going to raise up to rule the nations. Only the Son of God can do such things. Only the second person of the Trinity is the Son. That's why in Luke chapter 1, verse 31 and 32... Speaking to Mary, it is said, And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called, what? The Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him, say this to me, with me. The Lord, give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. The son of Psalm 2 and the son of Second Samuel chapter 7 is none other than the son of Luke 1, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole point here that the writer of Hebrews is making from Psalm 2 and Second Samuel 7 is this. Jesus has a name that is greater than the name angel. The name angel means messenger. The name son means heir to all things that belong to God. The name Son is the Davidic Son, the Messiah. The name Son is the Son of Psalm 2, the Messiah who will come and who will establish His kingdom and will rule forever. He is the Son. He is the heir. Everything that belongs to God belongs to Him. He owns it all. He has it all because they are one and the same. He is the ruling Son of God, the heir of all things. This is what Peter preached in Acts chapter 13. And it is what the consistent testimony of the New Testament is. Jesus is the Son of God. And by Son of God, we don't mean that He is inferior to God. We mean that He is the Son of Psalm 2 and the Son of Second Samuel chapter 7. God incarnate who rules above all things. Who has all power of God. Who has all knowledge of God. And who will rule the world as God on a throne. What angel has that ever been said? There has been no angel that even comes close to that. And this son is God. And this son comes before you and he says, I am the son of God. I am God in human flesh and there is none like me. There is no one like me. There is no one you can turn to who compares to me There is nothing you can go to that compares to me There is no other way to be made right with your creator than to be made right with me There is no one else that you must obey, but you must obey me There is no one else who deserves your worship, but I deserve your worship There is no alternative. There is no end around. There is no plan B I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except by me In 1 John chapter 5, John writes, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. In John chapter 3, verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. To reject the Son is to reject eternal life. To reject that He is God in human flesh is to reject the Father. There is no nonsensical way to be able to say, Oh, I believe in God, but I reject Jesus. To reject Jesus is to reject God. Satan knew that. Satan knew exactly who Jesus was. That's why in his temptation, the tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Because he knew He was the Son of God. It's why the angels, excuse me, the demons, the fallen angels, cried out in the presence of Jesus, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? They knew who He was. It's why the centurion in Matthew 27, verse 54, was drawn to his knees in repentance, because for the first time in his life, as he looked up at the broken and bleeding body of Jesus on the cross, the realization flowed over his body with waves truly this was the son of God and let me just tell you something this morning until you come to that same realization you are eternally lost you are eternally lost and on a path for an eternal hell and there is no other way around there is no one else to worship there is no one else who can help Only the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the only response is that of the Roman centurion to look to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are indeed the Son of God. And you deserve everything that I have to offer you. I have rebelled against you. I have run from you. I have denied you in a thousand ways. I have looked to other sources for my help and my hope. And I realize that there is no one like you. You're it, but you're everything. And so I confess my sin and rebellion and I bow myself before you. Take my life, forgive me. Give me eternal life. As I regard you as the Son of God, make me one of your sons or daughters that I might know you and walk with you. And be changed by you. That is the only hope of any human being this morning, or in the first century, or next year, or a thousand years from now. The only hope for man is to know Jesus as the Son of God. And if you don't know Him, here's what the Bible says. The wrath of God remains on you. That every day you breathe the air. That every night when you lay your head on the pillow... And you go to sleep. You wake up the next morning, one day closer, to standing before the Son of God, who will be your judge. And your judgment will be, away from me, I never knew you. The most frightening words any human being could ever hear. And so the choice is really yours. Is Jesus the Son of God, or is there someone greater? Is Jesus who He says He is? Will you see Him as that? Will you honor Him as that? Will you submit to Him as that? Or will you not? And let me just say, everything about you hangs in the balance as to how you answer that question. Lord Jesus, we are amazed by You. There is none like You. No one. No prophet. No angel. There is no one who is the Son of God but you. There is no one who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies but you. There is no one that Psalm 2 could be talking about except you. There is no one that 2 Samuel 7 could be talking about except you. No angel, no prophet, no one. Not Allah, not Joseph Smith. Not Charles Taze Russell. Not any yogi or swami out there. You stand alone and above everything. And I pray in my own heart and in the hearts of those who've heard this this morning that our only response would be that of that Roman centurion who fell before you at the cross. Truly, you are the Son of God. Until we come to that conclusion, we are eternally lost. So help us to see you for who you are. Begin even now as we continue to think about this throughout the week and next Sunday. Bring to our mind, bring to our recollection, into our our thoughts, ways in which we demote you, dishonor you, regard you as less than who you are. Help us with that, we pray, for your own sake and for our good. Amen. If you have questions about what you've heard this morning, or you want somebody to pray with you, I'm in the back of the room along with others who would be happy to talk with you, answer questions, or pray with you as we stand and sing this.